today, we're going to talk about giving. So turn to 2 Corinthians. I want to talk about Christian generosity in the church. Um, as you turn into 1 Corinthians, I'll set this up a little bit. These passages are talking about an offering taking among the churches that is going to give us some insight and some instruction on practices related to giving as part of the church. Now, I know that for some reason, when churches, when pastors get up and they start talking about giving, there's always a few people that get nervous about it. I've even had a couple of people get angry about it. Preacher, why are you talking about money? Um, I've never really understood why, because the scriptures talk about money a lot, like a lot, lot. Jesus there's 39 parables in the Gospels. 11 of those parables are about money. He talked about money more, more than he talked about heaven and hell. And we all know why. Because if you want to get somebody's attention, start talking about their money. So Jesus had their attention. And so it's been about two years since we even had a sermon on giving around here, which means that, that just sounds to me like we dropped the ball somewhere. I dropped the ball somewhere around here. Um. But I, but I want to be, be clear about something. This, this sermon, this text, isn't a sermon asking for money. This is a sermon about generosity. Now, we, we ended our 2022 on budget. We gave the most to missions we've given since 2007. Offerings have been down a little bit the last couple of months, but that usually happens during the holidays. I don't know if y'all know it or not, but things have gotten expensive. And churches have felt the brunt of that. I mean, Brent and I were talking about eggs this morning. I don't even grocery shop. And I know that $8 for 12 eggs is a lot of money. Brent said he did the math on it. It's like, what, five bucks a pound for the protein? Cheaper to buy ground beef than eggs? That doesn't make sense. Um, and I don't know if you know, but gas went back up too. So I don't know what that's about. Uh, and so um, I thought we'd fixed all that, right? Uh, what Twitter keeps telling me. Um, anyway. I'm honestly, I'm encouraged by, by um, what God's doing right now at our church. I really am. Um, and, and encouraged in some ways. I feel like some things we've been praying about, things we've been working toward, God's starting to, to, to bless. And so I'm, I'm interested to see what's going to happen here at Providence Church in 2023. Y'all see what I did there? I have to keep saying it to myself. So... Um, but I want, to start, I want to start this by reminding us of the words to Jesus, because I want to set the tone for this sermon. Jesus gave a specific principle that I think we can use to filter our feelings towards giving, towards money. In Matthew 7, when he said this in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And for most of my life, I read that and I thought this. Wherever you invest your time and energy and thoughts and money, that's where your heart is. Which means, you know, if you're investing all your time in your toy project, your house, your whatever, that's where your heart will be, okay? And then the text is teaching that. But there's another side that I think is more intentional that I missed all these years, more active, it's more purposeful approach. You could read it like this. Wherever you place your treasure, your heart will follow, which means if you apply that to spiritual life and spiritual giving, to stewardship and generosity, that 
Giving is a spiritual discipline just like worship and prayer and Bible reading and service. So think about it like this. Giving, stewardship, is a spiritual discipline. But the text in 2 Corinthians isn't just talking about rules about giving. It's talking about generosity, which isn't an issue of the wallet. It's an issue of the heart. Christians are called to be sacrificial givers, sacrificially generous And we see that demonstrated in this text. The the passage is the opposite of the world's approach to generosity. In some ways, it it goes against a lot of what the culture thinks about giving. But but before we read it, there's a little backstory you need from 1 Corinthians. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to tell you what's going on. So in 1 Corinthians, Paul mentions to the church in Corinth that they're taking up an offering among all the churches that he's visited for the church in Jerusalem that's under severe persecution. It's under direct assault. And and so Paul mentions to them, hey, we got these churches giving. They're giving towards this thing. We need you to participate in this. And the church in Corinth, it was a pretty wealthy church. They acted like they were all excited about the offering at first. But once the initial excitement wore off, they went back to being the church in Corinth. I don't know if you've read 1 Corinthians. It's a pretty messed up place. They just moved on to other things, and they stopped being generous in their giving. And in the second letter to the church in Corinth in chapter 8, Paul is referencing that offering from the first letter in 1 Corinthians. So let's read in verse 1 of chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians. Paul says, we want you to know, brothers, this is is like follow-up from that earlier offering. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this is not as we expected. But they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you might by his poverty become rich. Now let's walk through this passage and look at some things that this passage can teach us now about generosity. First, giving is an act of grace. This is the key to this entire section of what Paul is talking about here. Paul says when we give, we show grace. When we give money towards the cause of the kingdom of God, we are showing grace to others and receiving grace from God. Look in 2 Corinthians 8.1. Look what it says. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches in Macedonia. And then down in verse 7, the last part of the verse, it says, excel in all things. See that you also excel in the grace of giving. Giving itself is a grace. He he, he refers to it as grace. And then you move down to verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that the giving according to Scripture is not motivated by guilt. 
Giving is motivated by grace. So Paul's not trying to pour a guilt trip on them with this example. He even says that. He's showing them a portrait of grace of true giving using the church in Macedonia as his example. And he's talking about how, uh, according to the New Testament, this giving flows from grace, which makes it an issue of the heart. The church in Macedonia lived in abject poverty. I mean, it was extreme poverty. They were overtaxed. They had been ostracized by their culture. I mean, uh, they weren't just social media canceled. They were canceled, canceled, all because they were following Christ. At times, they couldn't even go in a store and buy food because they were Christians and they had rejected the false gods. They'd been completely ostracized. And according to Paul, the Macedonia believers were presented an opportunity to show grace and pass with flying colors because their joy in finding the saving grace of Jesus Christ in their life was greater than the trial of living in the poverty that they were living in, and it manifested in itself among those believers in extreme generosity. In fact, it manifested itself in an act of grace that only came because of what Christ Jesus had done in their life, and that's the only way Somebody living in the severe poverty they could live in could find joy in this generosity because they found it in grace. And look, I've seen this. I've experienced this in my own life. I've seen it happen in my own life. I remember years ago, um, uh, Lisa and I and my brother and sister were on a mission trip to Jamaica suffering for Jesus in the Caribbean. And so, um, and we... (laughs) We spent most of our time, out, and we did some touristy things while we were there, we spent most of our time outside the tourist areas up in the mountains, and, uh, and um, living where people literally, uh, there, was, there was no stores up there where they were living. I mean, it would, most of them didn't have cars, and so to walk six, eight miles to the store to get stuff, they did that like once a month, so they ate what they could grow in their yards or what they could pull out of the rivers and those kinds of things. And... One Sunday, we were up in the mountains somewhere in Jamaica. I, don't, I couldn't find it today if I had to. Um, at a church service that took place in a three-walled shack that was about 20 feet long and about 12 feet wide, had three walls on it. And there was about 200 people just surrounded this little shack while the, you know, the visiting missionaries got to sit inside under the little roof and, and, and sing and preach and do those things. But the pastor learned that a few days from then, we were headed to a school for the deaf um, that was self-sustained. It didn't get, to get, didn't get any government funding. They basically would take in any kids that were deaf that needed help. And so it relied completely on donations. And the kids would actually work and learn skills like wood carving and, and uh, furniture building and how to make clothes, and they would actually sell those in the tourist markets. So the pastor told us that he wanted to take an offering for us to take to this deaf school um, with us. And we already raised a bunch of money from American churches before we went. And we told the pastor, said, hey, if you want to do that, that's great. But, but I, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's not necessary. And this is what he said. He said, no, God has given us and offered us an opportunity to give in support of this, and we want to do it. So those people who walked to church... Some of them walked for miles to come to church that morning in a field, raised about $3,000, which was actually uh, almost the equivalent of what we had raised to give to the deaf school. 
um, from some other churches and cheered the loudest I've ever heard a ch- church cheer when the, when the pastor announced what they had raised because they literally took it and counted it. So we're going to count it. If we didn't get enough, we'll, we'll try again, right? And I don't know if y'all have ever been in one of those services, but I've been in several of them in my life. Um, I was actually more, this is, I'm going to chase this rabbit. Uh, uh, I was in one where I kid you not, they put ushers in front of the doors and said, we're not going to let you leave until we, <laughs> we hit, this, hit this goal. And I was like, all right, man, that's serious about this. At least you got any more cash. That's the way I was. I was like, oh, I don't want to be here all day. So uh, um, anyway, this isn't an issue about money. We, we see this manifested in Christians who run towards they, they, they run towards those in need while everybody else is running away. Isn't that the history of the Christian church? Those who leave lives of comfort to spend lives with those who need to hear the gospel. So many examples of those. That's the heart of generosity that Paul's talking about. shown in verse 3 when he says, For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord. But listen, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Please let us give. It reminded me of something I heard David Platt say. He said, grace makes beggars out of the people of God because it makes people who are begging to give. Number two, we give despite our circumstances. A few years ago, a pastor asked me, how do you preach on giving when so many people in my church are struggling financially? That's a great question. It's a question I've struggled with over the years pastoring. Um, this is an expensive place to live. We get hit weird. I feel like we're the front lines when the economy goes weird. But the answer in this text is it's not an issue of command or compulsion, but it's an issue of grace and joy. And if you treat it as such... You can discuss this with any group of people because the text teaches us. In fact, if you think about the story of the widow's mite, y'all familiar with that story? Right? Everyone else gave out of their wealth. She gave out of her poverty. And Jesus said she gave more than all of them. And that's exactly what Paul is talking about in verse 12 of chapter 8. It says, for if the eagerness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. God measures value differently than we do. It isn't about how much you give. It's it's, did you give as much as you could, as willingly as you could. Do you have an eagerness that's driven by the grace that Jesus Christ has done in your life to give generously? Not necessarily a lot, because we don't all have a lot. But are you giving generously? And, And when this happens... It, uh, the, the text actually teaches that, it, that it, it creates an equality in the body because the rich and the poor are giving the same. Because it's not tied to the amount. It's tied to the heart. You, you don't have to be rich to be generous. In fact, in my experience, the rich generally are not the most generous. Now, that's anecdotal, but I did find some statistics to back that up. Do you all know what the most charitable state in the U.S. is? Do you know what the poorest state in the U.S. is? Mississippi. My home state. 
been the poorest state for, I don't know, I'm, I'm 50 years old, 50 years at least. It's the most charitable state. They give the most per $100 of any state in the U.S. Like, I think it's like five, it's like five, Dollars and fifty cents per hundred dollars. California is the richest state in America, and it's number forty in giving percentage charitable giving. So, you know, like like I say, and and a lot. Let's be honest. A lot of that's tied to the fact that South's full of churches and people give to their churches, and that counts as charitable giving. California is not full of churches. Not people filling up their churches, but and so. You know, I, I mean, I, I get that, but that's why Utah is usually like number two. Sometimes it might flip to number one. All right, number three, we give because Jesus gave. If you know much about the church at Corinth, they were, they were kind of a mess. They were actually a good comparison to like a lot of modern day churches. They got so wrapped up in the gifts of the Spirit. They got so wrapped up in the doing, they forgot about the graces of the Spirit. And in this case, the grace of giving. It's why Paul rebuked them and said, if you don't have love, you're just making noise. You're just a noisy gong. You, you, you don't even really have value. And they were, they were all about the doing. They, they checked a lot of boxes. They checked all the boxes Christians should do, but their motives were wrong. And Paul tells them in verse 8, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Christ gave, we earn what he gave. We're rich because of what Christ gave up. Now, they would have probably preferred Paul just give them a command. Because aren't those easier sometimes? Black and white. Just give this amount, and you and God are good, right? That's not what Paul said. Because if that were the case, they could just check a box and brag on themselves like they've been doing. Paul wanted them to be motivated by love, not just legalism. The, 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 not just this issue of doing. It, it, he needed it, wanted it to become a spiritual discipline in their lives, not just an external, another list of religious things they needed to do. Give towards the cause of Christ, and your heart will grow towards Christ. That's what Paul's telling them. Christ gave everything. He left heaven. He became a man. He walked the earth as a pauper. And Paul said, since Christ did this for you, are you not willing to give to the work of the kingdom of God to help out fellow Christians? It, it, it wasn't much different, honestly, than a person who says, well, look, I don't give any money to the church, but I do volunteer in a couple of ministries and do some stuff like that. And look, that's great. We need that stuff. But it's actually not a substitute for financial giving. You need to be doing it all, according to the, to the, the Bible. Now, with Paul still talking about the Macedonian church, his generosity, they give some examples. Turn over to chapter 9. Look in verse 6. Paul's literally going to point out his testimony of the Macedonian church. It's fantastic. The point, the point is this. This is, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. 
And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work, which is what we've been called to as Christians, called to good works. Then as it is written, he is distributed freely, he is given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. And then he goes on, for the ministry of this service is not about supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession in the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them, for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Now, this text has been abused a lot. It is the go-to verse for the health and wealth crowd, the prosperity gospel crowd. The TV preacher that says, give me $1,000 and God will give you 10000 back. Amen. Pass the plates, boys. This text is not teaching that God will make you rich. It's kind of teaching the opposite. However, it is undeniable that the text is teaching there is an exchange happening. The text spells it out directly, not just here, but the Bible talks about this in Luke 6 and Proverbs 11 as well. It's the law of sowing and reaping. I, I mean, we don't plant a lot of stuff these days, but if you, y- y'all know, the, y'all can do the math. If you plant a tomato seed, in theory, you get a tomato plant, which will have, I don't know, five, eight, ten tomatoes, 12 tomatoes on, depending on how good, of, or zero, if you're like me. I got a plant. Where's my, where's my fruit? If you plant a field of tomato seeds, you get a field of tomato plants. Math's not hard. And we can't avoid the exchange in this text. God gives in return to what we give Him. If you're investing in the kingdom, you will reap the spiritual benefits of investing in the kingdom in grace and joy that's returned to you by God. And I want to pause real quick before before you even really think about that process. So what do we mean? In in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, it's not teaching. I want to be clear. It is not teaching that if you give to God, you will get rich. That if you give to God, you will be wealthy in this world and you'll have all the stuff you want. That is a prosperity gospel. That is not the true gospel. It's a false gospel. If you hear anybody teaching that, run from them. Call them a heretic on your way out the door. Maybe two or three people will follow you. The example Paul used destroys that idea anyway, because let's be honest, these people gave, but they were still in poverty. The Macedonian church stayed in poverty for a long time. We have a lot of history to prove that. Even though Paul says they gave generously. Well, look, let's move to 2023. Got Christians all over the world secretly meeting in house churches so their governments don't kill them or so their neighbors don't kill them, giving as generously as they can. And they're not driving Lamborghinis. 
It's garbage. It's garbage theology. Dangerous theology. According to this, issue of generosity goes directly to grace. It goes to our heart. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And if you struggle in this area, and you ask the question, how do I become a cheerful giver? You're not going to like my answer. Start giving more. What? Yes, I'm dead serious. Start seeing opportunities to give as opportunities to show grace and even test God. Nobody, amen, my test God. Chuck? I didn't say it. God said it. It's the only place. There's one place in Scripture where God said, test me. One. So I didn't say it. God said it. This is what he said. Bring Malachi 3.10, bring the full tenth into the storehouses so that there may be food in my house. Test me in this way, says the Lord of armies. See if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing for you without measure. That's it. That's the only place. But that blessing wasn't connected to God returning money to you tenfold. It was God promising that he is the God who provides for his children. And when we show acts of grace, he returns acts of grace in our life. And Paul said giving is an act of grace. And there's a lot of acts of grace. It's just the one we're talking about today. God will make grace abound to you. And there's a reason for that return. It isn't so that we can have more. It's so that we can give more. And that's a hard lesson to learn. It's a hard lesson to practice. Because, look, I got things I want. I, I want to finish my backyard. I don't know if it's ever going to happen. I don't know why the money keeps having to go other places, like food, right? Uh, and uh, God gives us more than we need so that we can be generous to others. However, the picture here is that God gives generously to us as we are given generously to others. That's the picture. We think about this now totally different than the way we think. Our, that's not the way economics works, right? If you keep more, you have more. That's just basic math. You know, I mean, you subtract from the savings account. There's not more in the savings account. Scripture's teaching give more so you have more. Now, this is an issue of values. God judges values differently than we do. We need to learn to judge values like God does. This generosity of God constantly replenishing the people of God as they're giving, that's the picture all the way down in verse 11. Generous giving to God results in greater giving from God, and God gives enough for us. So let me, let me get this out there and then show you this, especially in verse 8 and then in verse 11. God gives enough for us, and then he gives in abundance. Look at verse 8, chapter 9. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So God's generous to his children. He provides for his children. He's able to make grace abound for his children. He's making a grace bound, abound for the Macedonian Christians. They have all they need. That's the picture that's painted here. And then if you look, God gives more than we need. In uh, verse 11, chapter 9, you will be made rich in every way so that. When you see a so that in Scripture... What do you do with it? It's a purpose statement. So you got to say, so that what? So that you can be generous on every occasion, and through us, your generosity will result in 
thanksgiving to God. So why? God is able to give all that you need, and I have to admit, working through that, through this week, looking back at this text again, whew, that's a challenge. I mean, I, in, in our house, we've, we've always given. But even working through this, it makes me say, I'm, are we giving enough? Do I need to figure this out? Do I need to up this? This church has always been a generous church from day one. It's been amazing. When I, when I, when I talk to other pastors about like the giving percentages in this congregation, I don't even believe it. Because there's normally an 80-20 rule, like you know, 20% give about 80% of the money and do about 80% of the work and those kinds of things. But that's really never really been the case here. It's not 100%, so you know, don't pat yourselves on the back too much, but um, it's better than the norm. So, so if you want to pat yourself on the back, you can say, I'm better than the norm, right? Yay! All right. Uh, not excellent, but better than average. All right, so uh, it brings me joy to see what, what, what we gave to missions in 2022. It's been encouraging. And so knowing that the gospel will be shared through your generosity, knowing people will be fed through your generosity, that churches will be planted, that the gospel is going forth, watching the offerings and seeing God work in the lives of those who have given generously here at Providence Church makes me want to give more. Now look at verse 7. God loves a cheerful giver. Literally, literally a hilarious giver. If y'all come in here throwing money in the offering, cackling like a crazy person, We'll take the money, but I'm going to be like, mm. you know, you don't have to be hilarious. They just love it. They find so much joy in it, you see the joy overflowing. Now, that can happen in the, as we pass the bag, or it can happen while you're filling out the app uh, on your phone, or however, however, writing a check, whatever you do. But the opportunity to give is something special. It's the reason we still pass a bag around here and still make it a part of the moment of worship. But the attitude of the heart is not we have to give, it's that we get to give. We have an opportunity to give. It's a heart of thanksgiving, it's an opportunity to give. So I want to answer one big question, wrap up here. And I know I've gone a little long because of the announcements. Um, what about tithing? There's someone always asking me, am I supposed to give 10%? And then when they ask that, it's like, is that off the net or the gross? And I'm like, Dude, if you're having to figure out the net and the gross, this, this, we, this is gone. This conversation's already gone the wrong direction. It's the wrong question. That question, I think, misses the point of what Paul's trying to teach in 2 Corinthians. Paul is not commanding giving. He literally says that. I'm not doing this under compulsion. He's teaching about grace-filled generosity that manifests in giving, and out of that, there's an overflow of our connection to Christ. And in the Old Testament, there were, there were tithe laws. And if you added those up, they actually came out to be like 33%. Because you got to think, the, 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 the government was also tied into the temple and those things. So you're, you're giving to the temple, and then you're giving towards the, to some government stuff, and then you're giving towards something else, just like being taxed. And, um, and so... And when we approach the giving in the New Testament as a command, my fear is we lose the joy 
because it becomes nothing more than paying another bill. Like, baby, did you pay God this week? And, and look, God don't need your money. He doesn't. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills and the hills that the cows are on. I don't want us to approach this as I give because I have to. The new covenant giving isn't about an obligation to the law. It's about a giving out of abundance of grace, willingly, generously, cheerfully, not because we're forced to, but because we are free to. Because we are free to give, we aren't constrained by 10%. When, when in reality, we want to give all that we can give. Now, if you want to ask me about 10%, I actually think it's a, it's a worthy challenge goal for, for most people. Um, just basic math lets me know if everybody in the church gave 10%, we'd increase mission giving, we'd plant some more churches, we'd probably hire some staff, we might even have a building of our own. Um, but if we did all that through legalism, we haven't honored God. We look to Christ and what he gave. We see a sacrifice. It causes us to sacrifice. The gospel transforms our hearts. And in that transformation, we go from looking at giving as excuses and we start seeing it as an opportunity. And our lives become about Christ and his work, his kingdom, his agenda. And we end up sacrificing our rights and give our resources for a cause that's greater than ourselves and honestly, think about it. It's in a cause that's eternal. It's an eternal reward. Not temporal. It has eternal value. Now look, I, I know we have guests here today, and we are going to take an offering in a few minutes, and I just want to tell you guests, I'm not trying to persuade y'all to give to our church. The principles apply to all Christians. But those of us that are part of Providence Church, we have a responsibility here. And I've been pastoring long enough to know without even, I don't have to check giving records or anything. I know there are four groups of people listening to this message. There are those who give willingly, generously, hilariously. I, I don't know what percentage of that is, because even if I saw the numbers, I couldn't judge that because I can't judge your motives. And I can't judge it based on amounts, because that's not what the text is teaching. There are those that give out of compulsion, and I've, I've been there in my life, uh, you know. I mean, I, I kind of grew up un, under that a little bit, and, and thank God my parents were... Uh, sometimes kids need a little legalism, you know what I mean? And, uh, and I did. They were like, my mom was like, did you give this week? I know you made a dollar last week pulling weeds out of so-and-so's yard. Did you give 10 cents? I was like, no. I give 10 cents this morning. Boy, and uh, you know, the time I'm like, all right, mom. And uh, now I'm like, I don't know what this dime's gonna do, but there you go. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I was little, you know. But I don't know. If, you know, just do some math on y'all. When I when I got my first job, and I know some of y'all gonna beat this really bad, but my first job, I think minimum wage was like three twenty-five or something like that. So, um. That was before taxes, too. And um, I, I, I want giving to be a joyous spiritual discipline in your life that draws you closer to Christ. And if you're giving out of compulsion, might be a lot, might be a little, but you're checking a box. And I, 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 
I thank you for what you give, but I want you to shift that from obligation to joy. And then there's those who give sporadically. And, and whenever the mood hits you, you got a few extra dollars, pass a plate, for whatever reason, you throw something in, or if there's some special offering and you give to that, and you never really set aside and disciplined yourself to treat this as a spiritual discipline and give regularly and give generously. And 2023 is a year to change that and see what God does in your life. Make it a discipline. Make it an issue of spiritual discipline in your life and see how much different it makes over the rest of the year. And then there is those who rarely or never give. And that, this group always surprises me a little bit. I hurt for you the most because I think you don't understand what you're missing out on. On, on what Paul is talking about in this grace blessing, you're missing out on an opportunity God has given you to bless yourself and others because if you're not giving, if you go back all the way back to the front of this text and you tie it to spiritual disciplines, and you think about this issue of the heart, and you think your heart's bought into this place, but it's really not. Really not. So my challenge to you would be start giving something, even if it's $5. That's the 2023 equivalent of $0.10, by the way. That's how much inflation's gotten. Start giving towards the work of the kingdom of God and see if it doesn't make a difference in your relationship with Christ because it is a spiritual discipline. See if it doesn't change your attitude towards others. What if in 2023 we committed as a church to personally ask, what does it mean for me to be a grace giver? To pray and seek God and ask Him to direct you, to work in you to change your heart and to become someone who desires to give generously and then shift from the desire to give generously to the giving generously. To the per- so it's the heart change that happens. It's a part of renewing your mind. I... I as I think about it, the reality is most of what we value in life, not all, but most of what we value in life, one day is going to burn. So what can we give towards eternity? And that's tied to the work of the kingdom of God. And my prayer is, this is a year we all can become grace givers.